Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Well, welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters is what uh, the other Mike would say. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different podcast for two in a row. Um, let me talk you through that real quick. So Mike and I share almost all of the same uh, beliefs uh, when it comes to doctrine. Um, and I said almost. There are a couple of differences. And um, one of those is our view on creation. And so um, some folks in the Theology Matters uh, have asked a couple times uh, if we would maybe consider doing a podcast. And we don't want to necessarily have a podcast where we are arguing back and forth with one another. Um, so what we decided was each of us would do a single podcast where we kind of argue for our position. I'm not going to be uh, attacking his position necessarily, and he's not going to be attacking my position. Uh, the theme of our podcast are why do we believe what we believe. Now, I will answer some objections that um, we get, and I'm assuming he'll answer some objections as well. Um, so there will be a little bit of um, guarding against the other side, but mostly we're going to be putting forth a positive case on why we believe what we believe concerning creation. Um, and so before I get into my particular beliefs, I thought I would just give you a summary of the six most common beliefs out there. Now, for this, I've resurrected a, an old um, PowerPoint, and um, so I'll be going through that. So some of the, the slides I've, I've not seen for a few years, so forgive me if I stumble over them. Um, but I think the standard view among Christians, or at least has been uh, for the uh, early 1900s through the late 1900s, was what we would call young earth creationism. Uh, there's old earth creationism. Between the two, there's a new view um, that's coming around called new earth creationism. It's kind of between the two, maybe a 10,000-year-old earth, maybe a 20,000-year-old earth, um, not as young as 6,000, but not as old as what your typical old earth creationist would believe. Uh, there's theistic evolution, or as some of them might be called evolutionary creationists, deistic evolutionism, agnostic evolutionism, and atheistic uh, evolutionism. And I've put some folks here. Honestly, I don't remember uh, all of these folks. There's Ken Ham uh, for the Young Earth, uh, Hugh Ross for Old Earth, uh, Francis Collins for the Theistic Evolutionism. It's been a while since I looked up these guys, so I did not remember the guy who is a Deistic Evolutionist or the Agnostic Evolutionist. Uh, we have um, Richard Dawkins there standing in for the uh, Atheistic uh, Evolutionism. Um, even though he says he, on a scale of you know, 1 to 10, he's about a 6 or a 7 for sure that God doesn't exist. Uh, he's written an awful lot of books and spoke pretty strongly about his beliefs. So I've, got, I've categorized him under uh, as an atheist instead of as an agnostic. So um, just real quickly, some of the uh, characteristics of each one of these. Um, for young earth creationism, they believe there's a God. They believe the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. All species were directly created, and they also believe that there was no animal death before the fall. They believe in a literal Adam and Eve. 
for old earth creationism. Yes, there's a God. Um, the universe is somewhere between 13, you know, somewhere around 13.8, 14 billion years old. Um, all kinds were directly created. So uh, God may have created the horse kind, and from the horse kind we get horses and um, donkeys and burrows and zebras, etc., etc. Uh, no human death before the fall, but there was animal death before the fall, and also literal Adam and Eve. Um, where Adam and Eve get placed in old earth creationism varies. Uh, there are some that would put Adam and Eve 100 to 200,000 years ago. Some would put Adam and Eve more like 6,000 years ago. So old earth creationism, um, there's a lots of different types. There, there's gap theories, there's day-agers. Um, there's those who just take all of Genesis as um, myth mythology or, or figurative. Um, so just because someone says there's an old earth creationist doesn't necessarily give you insight into what they really believe. You need to ask some more questions uh, to figure out where they exactly fall. Then for the theistic evolutionist, uh, there is a God. The earth is the same age. God used or directed evolution to bring about all species from a common ancestor. And Adam and Eve, in this uh, scenario, almost always are figurative. I, I'm leaving the possibility open that there's a theistic evolutionist out there who believes in the at, literal Adam and Eve. I haven't seen or heard of that person, but I, I guess it's possible that that person exists. Um, while my goal here is not to attack theistic evolution part of the, I think I just want to point out that part of the problem here is that evolution neo uh, Darwinian evolution where um, mutations and survival of the fittest uh, produce uh, changes and adaptations from a common ancestor to create all that we have is at the core an undirected process so in my mind, it does not make sense for the theistic evolutionist to say that God directed an undirected process. Either there's a directed process, and at least that's intelligent design. It may look a lot like um, evolution from the outside, but, but God is directing and inserting information in the DNA code along the way. I believe a Michael Behe is something more along those lines. Um, but for a Francis Collins, he is 100% undirected process. And I don't know how you square that with God directing it. So I, that's a contradiction in terms to me. Uh, for deistic evolution, uh, there is a God. The earth and universe are the same. Uh, God created it and then kind of left it alone. All species evolved from a common ancestor. There's no need for an Adam and Eve uh, because God really hasn't interacted with his creation. Um, agnostic evolution, uh, there may or may not be a God, same age, all species evolved from a common ancestor, no Adam and Eve. Uh, atheist, there is no God, the uh, universe is the same age, all species um, evolved from a common ancestor, there is no Adam and Eve. And before I go on to the next slide, I'll, I'll just add here, um, science is pointing to what they've called um, the mitochondrial Eve because they can trace the DNA in our mitochondria 
and we inherit that directly from our mom. So there are some mutations along the way, and we can see those mutations, uh, and so they can kind of map you into different segments of the population based on when that mitochondrial DNA got mutated. Um, but they can see that all the mitochondrial DNA trace back to the, the same female. And in a similar fashion, there's some DNA that we inherit only from our dads, and all of that DNA points back to the same um, figure, which would be an atom. So I'll at least say the DNA evidence points to a single, all of us coming from one woman, all of us coming from one man. Um, when this stuff, when the information first came out, their models predicted that they were off by several hundred thousand years. They're like, oh, well, there may have been a quote-unquote Eve, and there may have been a quote-unquote Adam, but they didn't live at the same time. But uh, more recently, their models have put them into the, the same time frame. So I'll just point out that as science goes along, what, what science um, is predicting and discovering is more and more closely aligning to the Bible. So those are broadly six different views. What am I? I am an old earth creationist. Um, and what is the other Mike? He's a young earth creationist. So um, the Bible is actually replete with a lot of different um, references to creation or stories about creation. Um, it's not just Genesis 1 or just Genesis 2. Um, we see uh, a bunch of references to it. I'm not going to read all of these. I'll point out Genesis 1 and 2 are, are kind of the, the biggest uh, passages, but uh, Job uh, 34 through 42 talks about creation. Um, Psalm 19 talks about uh, creation, how it uh, speaks to us about God's existence. Um, Romans 1 uh, talks about creation and how it's there to point us to a creator and how when we fail um, that um, God you know, lets us uh, run, run afoul of our own sin. So there's a lot in the Bible that talks about creation from the beginning to its fall um, till the end where we're going to see a new creation. All right, so God's revelation. How has God revealed himself to us? Um, I maintain and most people maintain that God has revealed himself to us through what we call special revelation. This would include um, his written word, what we have today. It would also include when he has spoken to us through uh, prophets, through apostles, and through his son. Um, and that God has revealed himself through what we would call natural or general revelation. Um, and this is what Romans um, 1, 18, 19, and 20 um, tell us, that we can see God's invisible qualities through uh, what can plainly be seen in creation. And so we learn a lot about who God is, what type of God he must be um, from both of these revelations. Um, and so Hugh Ross has called these the book of Revelation and the book of nature. I know some people uh, don't like those names. Well, nature is not a book because um, you can't read the words. Well, we can read what nature is saying, uh, although it's not written in you know, English. And um, I'll just say that both of these agree. Um, God isn't going to say one thing through his special revelation and a different thing through his general revelation. He's going to say the same thing. Now, if 
we ever uh, think that there's a contradiction between the two of them, um, we're misunderstanding one of them, and or both of them, and um, we we should seek to reconcile them. Uh, this was famously done uh, back in Galileo's time when uh, folks took the verses in Psalms about the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun to mean that the earth must be in the center and the sun goes around it. This was a, a fairly big deal and uh, the church was weighing in saying that, you know, uh, the Copernicus uh, view of our solar system that the sun was at the center couldn't be right because um, God's words says that the earth is in the center. Now, most time folks uh, balk at this example when I give it to them, but the fact remains that no one that I know of today is a geocentrist. We're all heliocentrists because the natural revelation has spoken so loud, uh, it's made us reinterpret that special revelation. Now we take that language as phenomenological. We say that the, whoever was writing um, was saying the rising and setting of the sun because that's what it appears to do from our vantage point on earth. And so they're just writing down the appearance of the rising and setting of the sun, even though we know that uh, the earth is uh, revolving and rotating around the sun. And all communication, kind of goes along with what I was saying, must be interpreted. Whether we're reading words, whether we're taking um, samples from some rock, all of that has to be interpreted and understood. And if we get that interpretation wrong, then we're going to get the meaning wrong. Um, that's just a part of communication. All right. Um, so in God's special revelation in Genesis, um, there have been people who read that and thought that something other than 144 consecutive hours was going on. St. Augustine um, thought that, or at least it appears he thought that. There are some folks who um, are um, debating that today. But uh, other Christians, um, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, is one that comes to mind, who also thought that perhaps um, what was going on in Genesis was not a tale of 144 consecutive hours. And they arrived here based on the text alone, not because they're trying to make room uh, for evolution uh, as is commonly claimed today. So let's talk about why they might have come to those conclusions. Well, first, if we read through the Genesis account, and we're not going to read through all of it um, right now, I will address it um, in a minute once I kind of get through all this. What is a morning? Well, a morning just is the rising of the sun. If we say there was morning, we mean that the light was going from dark, or you know, the, the light outside was going from dark to, to light. What is the evening? Well, it's the opposite of that. It just is um, the sun setting or the sun um, going down, it going from light to dark. So, of course, the question now comes, when was the sun created? Um, on the normal view, the sun's created on the fourth day. 
And so morning and evening cannot be taken literally for the first three and a half days. There's no way you can say that the morning and the evening that Moses is referencing on day one is the sun setting um, if you hold that the sun was created on the fourth day. Now you could say that it was going from light to dark or from dark to light. That's fine. Um, but that is a figurative use of morning and evening, not a literal use of that. So I just want to point out that even from the beginning, the get-go, there's some hints here that uh, it may be more going on than just um, a plain wooden interpretation of the text. Uh, additionally, I want to point out what happens on day six. Well, Genesis 1.28 says that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish and of, of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every uh, living thing that moves on the earth. If you were to go back a few verses, you would see that God created uh, basically all the land animals from the small things up to the large things to include um, humans. And uh, God tells them on the humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That all happens on day six. Well, if you fast forward to chapter two, we see uh, the Adams in the garden and the Lord says it's not good for him to be alone and he will make a helper suitable for him. And if you recall, right after this, every single animal, or at least every single kind, which would still be a lot, is paraded before Adam, and Adam has to name um, that animal. And uh, at least I think what's going on is God is saying, you need a helper. Let me show you all these animals. There's not a helper here for you. Uh, you need a, a, a special helper. And um, so then he creates Eve. And uh, I believe what we see described thereafter is a, a wedding ceremony of sorts. And Adam and Eve consummate their marriage. And God um, tells them, you know, what he's put together. Um, no one should put apart. One man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. Um, and so, and then, according to chapter 1, after all that's happened, um, he tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and, and, and subdue the earth. So while God's not limited by the things he can accomplish in time, Adam is a human, and he's limited by the things that he can accomplish. So is Eve. And, and at least I get the sense from reading the text in Genesis 1 that um, God didn't, you know, just speak and all these animals came into existence. It seems like there was an order uh, when we go to the animals that were created. So uh, it seems like there is an awful lot going on um, on day six that even from um, Adam's standpoint would be too much. And um, probably from uh, not that it's too much for God, but at least how God revealed what he did seems like it's um, more than what could happen in a 24-hour in a period, or at least while the daylight's out, because that would be even less. All right, so really, 
our view of what happens during creation is all going to hinge on this word, yom, which is the Hebrew root for, word for day. And in our last episode on Hermeneutics 101, I even referenced this, and I said, if Moses, when he wrote yom, intended a calendar or 24-hour day, then my view of the scripture is wrong. And I'm willing to, to stand by that and willing to change my view. If, however, Moses had something longer than a day, a um, some indefinite period of time longer than a day, then um, my view is right, or at least it's closer to right. Uh, I don't think that Moses would have had to have known or had to have thought um, some you know, very long period of time, like we think that the universe exists now, is as in billions of years. Um, because as we'll talk about later, I think he was writing phenomenologically as well. And so he was describing what God was revealing to him. And so he puts it into to six different packets. So uh, if you look at uh, the verses that have this um, word yom in it, and I've highlighted and just copy them over here. And there was evening and morning one day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And then by the seventh day, um, God had completed his work and he rests on the seventh day. Um, so there are four literal ways to interpret the word yom. And so I take I interpret the day the word yom literally. It can mean a 24-hour period. It can mean a calendar day, like we would say um, Valentine's Day is on the 14th of February. What we mean is um, the 14th day of February, just a calendar day. It can also mean the time of the earth cycle when it's light outside so um you say hey timmy you need to go mow the yard while it's still day well we don't mean that you know in a few hours it's going to go from you know march 15th to march 16th we mean in a few hours it's going to be dark it's no longer going to be daytime uh, we also in our everyday english although we probably use it less um can use day to mean some indefinite period of, of time um these phrases are less often used in English, and I'll try to explain why I think that's the case. But you might hear someone say, you know, there's coming a day of reckoning. They don't mean a calendar day, a time of uh, of the day when it's light out, um, a 24-hour period of time. They just mean there's going to be some period of time, indefinite period of time, when things are set to right. And um, that's probably the, the best English phrase there is to kind of explain this. Um, so in Hebrew, there's those four literal definitions, and I think Moses is using that fourth one, um, some indefinite period of time. And so here are some verses, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so one day, if I ever become a Hebrew scholar, I might expand on the verses that I've selected, but the verses that I have selected are the exact same conjugation of the word yom. I've limited the verses... Um, that I'm choosing to illustrate all this with to those that have yom conjugated the exact same way because I, for fear 
that some Hebrew scholar would say, oh, well, you use this conjugation of yom, which means um, it clearly has a different meaning. And, you know, Moses didn't use that one um, in Genesis. And so that's why your argument's wrong. So maybe one day if I study and learn enough about Hebrew, I can include those other ones that are conjugated uh, slightly differently. But all the verses that we're going to be talking about are conjugated the exact same way that Moses wrote um, in the uh, in these verses right here. All right, so I just have some to illustrate the different ones. Until your brother's anger, this, so this is just cherry pluck. This is um, Sarah talking to not Sarah, uh, Rachel talking to. Um, make sure I got that right. Uh, no, Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca. <laughs> so this is Rebecca talking to Jacob uh, after Jacob has deceived um, his father Isaac uh, into thinking he's he is Esau. And so Rebecca says, "Until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him, then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day?" Um, so I'm not trying to illustrate the whole story here. Uh, if you know the story, uh, she's saying, hey, go flee to this other country, Heron, this other land, Heron, and um, go away. I don't want to lose both of you in one day. And I think obviously she means a calendar day here. She's not talking about the light time or 24 hours. Uh, that which was torn of beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or by night. And this is again um, Jacob talking to um, his father-in-law and saying, hey, I, I took the, the losses by day or, or night and day here is the light time. Um, now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming and the Egyptians wept for him uh, 70 days. This is Joseph uh, when he died and the 40 days here you could take as calendar days or 40 24-hour periods uh, they would be consecutive in this case so I think kind of both of those definitions are uh, there um, so here is um, verse this is Leviticus 8 33 this is an interlinear interlinear so you see that it's actually um, from right to left and it says and from the door of the tent of meeting not do go out or we would say in English do not go out um, seven days until the days be at an end of days of your ordination for seven days you he will fill you with the strength of his hand so here the um, Tabernacles being dedicated, and you see right in the middle of your screen, I think I have it highlighted. So you see Yom here, and notice that it is the singular form. It's the same conjugation. If you look at the days to the left and right, do you see how it's uh, spelled slightly differently? Even though the strong concordance number is the same, 3117E. You'll, you see that how it's actually spelled differently. Let me see if my mouse will work here. Uh, it's conjugated different. So that's what I was trying to 
um, talk about before. But here we have the word yom as used by Moses, and this is Moses again. So we can't argue that, well, it's a different human author, and so he's using the word slightly differently. Uh, it's Moses writing Leviticus, and this singular form of the word day is standing in for actually a plural indefinite period of time. Well, we know that the, the period is actually a week, it's seven days. Um, and so uh, if you look at that verse, uh, Leviticus um, 8.33, you'll see yom here to mean a longer than 24-hour period. It's meant to stand in the place of seven days. Uh, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, um, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Um, so if you remember how long uh, they were there, uh, it was more than one single day, but he just says, remember the day. I moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Like the first time the Lord listened to me that time also, the Lord was not willing to destroy you. Again, the singular form of day is used uh, here. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time. Uh, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. So again, we have the day of their calamity is going to be not limited to a um, one calendar day or one 24-hour period of time. Uh, the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Well, the captivity of the land was longer than a day, uh, so you could say until the time of the captivity of the land. So, uh, again, that's being used um, in this fourth way that I'm talking about. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Um, and then in the Minor Prophets, you have several instances where we talk about the day of the Lord. And um, that phrase is used a lot similar to the day of reckoning and obviously that doesn't make sense to try to say I guess you could say well the day of the Lord is just that one 24-hour period where he comes back or that one um, calendar day when he comes back um, and it doesn't talk it doesn't really refer to all the things he's going to do to set things right that I don't that doesn't make sense when you think of the day of the Lord it's when Jesus comes back and he's setting uh, everything right so why do I think, um, I said earlier, that uh, we don't have as many phrases in English that would use day this way as they do in Hebrew? Well, ancient Hebrew has approximately 8,700 words. Uh, some of those words are considered duplicates, and removal of these brings the number down to around 3,000 words. And so just like English, we have more than one word for one thing. Um, they may have a couple words. So at, at, they're dealing with somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000 words. Um, 
those can get conjugated to kind of give slightly different meanings, but so can uh, our English words. In modern day English, we have over a million words. And so we have eon and age and, um, you know, billion. So we have a lot of other words that we could put in uh, to represent some indefinite longer period of time whereas Moses just didn't have that many words to choose from and day in this fourth literal definition would have been Moses's uh, best choice to uh, convey what he meant so I had down here there's no other word at Moses disposal if he wanted to indicate a long indefinite period of time or no better word all right so um, if day can be longer or it can be 24-hour periods, or it can be, um, you know, just a calendar day or when lights out. How do we choose between those four um, different definitions? Well, when we're reading a verse, lots of times the context will just tell us which one. Or, and if you go to something like Bible Hub, um, and you just, you know, find one of these verses, you go to the interlinear and click on day it'll show you all the different ways that yom is translated and it might surprise you that you have a lot of english words that aren't day standing in the place of yom and so you're reading through the old testament and you may see the word when you may see the word birthday i'm trying to remember all of my uh, and i'm not going to be able to but there are a lot of different ones that might strike you as, oh, that's just Yom underneath there? Yeah, that's Yom underneath there that the translators have chosen to translate into one of those million words that we have at our disposal to help us understand the exact intent, whereas Moses didn't have those. So how do we choose between all those four different definitions? Um, well, it's the context. And um, so let's look at some of the context of Genesis to determine how we might choose. So I think if we focus on the verbs, it'll help. So there is the, the verb bara. It means created, and it means to create out of nothing. Interestingly enough, God bara three, thing, three different things into existence. Uh, on the first day, he, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, this is bara when he creates the um, great whales, if you're using the King James Version, um, uh, terrible sea monsters, great dragons. Um, that could, that uh, depend on how you, those are translated, that's another day that he created out of nothing. And then lastly, he created man out of nothing. So God only created out of nothing um, three times. Uh, then you will see lots of these verbs. Um, uh, and I, it's been a while since I went over these pronunciations, but let's I'm just let's just bear with me. Hayah, which would be let there be. So you see this lots of time. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Um, Asa means he made or fashioned out of something. So you might say a blacksmith made um, some tool. Well, it doesn't mean he created that tool from nothing. It means he took some material and fashioned it. Uh, Dasha, 
means to bring forth or to grow plants or let plants to, to sprout. It has an idea of a process taking place. Yatsa uh, means to bring forth, um, to go or come out. Uh, and this refers to animals uh, being birthed or growing and uh, leaving. So all of these verses, all of these verbs, with the exception of the first one, all have with them um, some process associated with them, some time frame associated with them. Lots of time, the time frame that would be normally associated with these verbs would be longer than 24 hours. Uh, so in some sense, God is saying that you wait for something to happen. Um, Genesis 1.9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And so if we come back to this, this is uh, the, the let there be. This is the God, God is letting this process happen. He's directing that process. He's sovereign over that process, but he, it doesn't appear from the text that it is an instantaneous um, thing. They are gathering together. It's happening over time, and the dry land is appearing. Um, so yom can mean an indefinite period of time, the morning and evening. I think it's clear that there are devices to break up the activities of creation. I, you know, I think what happens is Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God's revealing a lot to him. A lot of that's recorded in Leviticus um, because he's in the end of Exodus because he's given all these um, Levitical laws and laws about the people and laws about the tabernacle, etc. But um, while there may have been an oral tradition that was passed down from Adam through, you know, through Noah to Moses, I believe God's also revealing Moses, to Moses how he created, so we can write that down. So if God is showing Moses what he did, and he has like six different, um, you know, groupings together that Moses is writing, and um, Moses is using this um, device of a morning and evening to break up those things that God's showing, right? Here's the first scene. Here's the second scene. Here's the third scene, fourth, fifth, and sixth different scene that God is showing him as, as how he's creating um, everything. The creation count is full of words indicating a process is at work, that one has to wait, etc. So I think all of these from the text not only hint at, or not only allow, but also hint at or strongly advise us that maybe what's going on is longer than that 24-hour period uh, definition of Yom. Maybe it's this um, longer indefinite period. And of course, uh, when we look at the natural revelation, we would say, okay, those are in some sometimes hundreds of thousands of years between them, sometimes um, billions of years in between them. Um, so I do want to answer some objections that uh, those of you who are listening or watching might be raising, and I've had this one before. Couldn't God have created instantly? Yes, he could have. I don't believe he created instantly, and neither do young earth creationists. And the Bible doesn't say he created instantly. Um, other than those cases of Barah where we, he created out of nothing, um, he, God created for a time, and then he rested. And then he created for a time, and then he rested. And I'm using rested um, not in the seventh day rest, but just during the nighttime. Um, during the evening, God's not active. So there was a time of creation, 
then not creation. Creation, not creation for six days. And then there was the seventh day when God rested from all of his labors. So yes, God could have created instantly. No one thinks he did that. Um, so I'm not sure where the objection is supposed to go. Um, couldn't God have created everything in a mature state? Yes, he could have. Do I think he created things in a mature state? Um, sometimes. I think Adam was created in a mature state. He seemed to be a man. Um, lots of people like to peg him somewhere around 30 to 35, um, maybe 33, because they have him as a mature man, just like Jesus was a mature man uh, when he went to the cross. Um, but there's a difference between maturity and age. So what we wouldn't expect to see uh, in Adam is any hardening of his arteries or any scars or any calluses. Um, we would not expect to see any, you know, wrinkles, gray hair, um, any of those things that would indicate that Adam had lived for you know, longer than two or three minutes. He would have had a perfect body uh, with no age, but maturity. And so I think when we look at our um, universe, at our creation, we see things that not only um, speak of God's great creation, but we see things that speak of um, age as well. And you can see that it's a picture of my hand with calluses on there. And, and the only way you get calluses is that you do work. Uh, you're lifting weights, uh, which is how I got those calluses. Or you're, you know, digging with a shovel or something. And your, you know, skin gets irritated. And then your body, because it's wonderfully created, um, builds up a callus there. So it can protect against um, future use. Um, so let me explain some of the things that I think point to um, maturity and age in our universe. So if the center of this little dot here is the earth, then this circle, let's say this circle is 7,000 light years away. Um, I just rounded up to seven. Um, but however old the earth is um, on a young earth view, uh, six to 7,000 years old, um, that far away uh, would be all of the stars that we should be able to see. So if we kind of put, you know, a star background here, um, only the stars that would be in that circle would be the stars that we should be able to see. And that's, I mean, it's some, it's not, it's not a huge amount. Uh, Alpha Centauri um, would be there. Um, trying to remember um, all the stars that would be in that radius, but not very many stars um, percentage-wise would be in that radius. But we can see uh, what appears to be around 14 billion light years of stars in every direction. Uh, so how can we see the stars that are uh, way out here, much further than 7,000 light years away. 
Well, and if you're not very scientific, let me just back up and say, well, why wouldn't we be able to see those? Well, light takes time to travel. And if a star was created beyond this 7,000 years of, of distance away, then there wouldn't be enough time for that star's light to travel from that star and hit the earth and let us see it. Um, so only the stars that would be inside this circle would have enough time to uh, actually uh, have its light get there. So some uh, responses to this have been, well, God can just create the light beams that would travel from, let's say, this star, uh, which is much further away. Um, he can just create the light, even though maybe from creation, only this much light would have, have gotten to us. He's created the rest of that light um, so that we can just see and observe the universe. But what about a, a supernova? So let's say that we are seeing light from a star way over here. And then all of a sudden, um, we see that light go supernova. Well, supernova is the death or the destruction of a star. And what if... So God creates some light uh, to be here so that we can see, and then he has to also create this supernova because there's no way we would actually see this supernova out here because we just don't have enough time. So what God has, on this view, would actually have done was given us um, a stream of light, and then the record of the death or explosion of this star um, which star never really existed because in order for that supernova to have occurred, it would have had to have happened, um, you know, billions of years ago. And that light, at least on the old earth uh, creation view, uh, would have taken that long to get here after um, it went supernova. So supernova of stars that are farther than 7,000 light years away, which all the stars that go supernova, we want them to be more than 7,000 light years away. Um, all of those would be faults, deceptions on uh, God's part because um, the stars would have never have existed because we can't go back far enough in time for them to exist. And um, the light that we're seeing is just light from something that never existed because the supernova is actually um, a star that never existed. So I think that's one problem. Um, that I think exists for a young earth creationist. Um, and when, so when we're looking at um, the book of Revelation, I think this is uh, evidence of age, not just maturity, but evidence that there are scars, etc., in our universe. Uh, a young, a supernova would be a, a type of scar um, that would say, all right, this isn't just maturity. This is age. It was actually something that was destroyed, um, that went out. This is like, uh, you know, the callus on the hand, but at, you know, at a, a celestial level. All right, some more objections um, to, to my view. Isn't a universe that took 13.8 billion years to make ready for humans and takes up 11 trillion cubic light years wasteful and efficient? Well, Efficiency and waste are only important for beings who are limited by time or resources. God's not limited by either one of those. 
Um, additionally, I recommend to you Hugh Ross's book, Improbable Planet. It's just mind-boggling to me. Like I remember listening to it because that's how I do all of my reading these days, or nearly all of it on Audible. Just crying in my, just go, driving in my car, bawling, uh, overwhelmed by all that God had to do to um, make everything perfect for us. And I'm not just, uh, I'm not just talking about the simple things that we talk about, like Jupiter being there or a moon being there. Yeah, those are, and those are, those even of themselves are not simple. I'm talking about the large clusters of galaxies, where our star is in the, the our galaxy how our star is unique like there's not even our types of stars normally in this part of our galaxy um, the zone in which we're in our galaxy is one that we're basically going to stay the same distance and stay in the same place in the arm of our galaxy over a long time um, which star, our stars like ours don't form in that place so something uh, our star had to form closer in and then get pushed out into this perfect spot which it, he just goes over and over and over uh, all the things that God did throughout these 13.8 billion years to um, make it be a spot where we could not only live, but we could see the universe, we could learn about the universe, we can you know measure distances, discover the speed of light, um, talk about you know gravity and forces the moon being the exact size as the sun, at least from our perspective, so that we get these perfect solar eclipses and lunar eclipses, is mind-boggling. So I think, you know, to say that, well, on our view that, you know, God just kind of set these things in motion and did nothing, and these, our Earth would naturally, you know, show up is, is not... Hugh Ross's view is not my view. Um, so I don't, um, hopefully I've answered this objection. All right, so what are some positive examples, evidence from science um, that would also uh, lead us to believe that the earth and the universe is older than uh, 7,000 years? Expansion rate of the universe paired with the size of the universe. So uh, when we first got around this number, when we kind of reverse the clock, we see that around 14 billion years ago, 13.8 billion years ago, um, given our expansion rate of the universe, uh, we would have be, you know, if we were to roll that clock back, we would collapse into a single point. There's radioactive elements. We can measure um, the age of those radioactive elements based on the daughters that they leave behind and the uh, relation of the daughters um, amongst themselves. There's evidence of long eras. We have pulsars in our universe. There are supernova that we witness far away from us. Uh, we have a long evidence of magnetic poles switching um, longer than 6,000 years uh, in our Earth's rocks, etc. Uh, so, there's more evidence here. This is just kind of the, you know, I think the big ones so you may be asking, all right, well, Michael, what's your understanding? How do you take Genesis 1? So I take Genesis 1, 1 to be the Big Bang, what scientists call the Big Bang. And let me just say here for a minute, scientists do not like the term Big Bang. 
Um, at least at the beginning they didn't, uh, because before uh, this discovery of the expansion of the universe and the red shifts and the blue shifts and stars, scientists believed that the universe was eternal, that it was has just always existed. And all of those, the expansion of the universe now said, wait a minute, if the universe is expanding and we roll our clocks back, that means that eventually um, the universe goes back to a single point um, that we can't really, we, we don't even have equations to define that single point. And so there must have been a beginning to the universe. Scientists like Hoyle did not like this. And, and Christians, for whatever reason, we tend to shy away from the term Big Bang because I think we associate it with evolution millions of years we've been taught that millions and billions of years is wrong um, but the big bang represents a beginning which is what genesis says there was in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the context here the heavens and the earth is a phrase that's used in hebrews to talk really about all of creation it's the heavens the stars it's the earth what we live on um, so i believe that after this there's you know some seven billion years uh, and a change in context, maybe longer than 7 billion years, longer than 7 billion years. Um, so Genesis, so if you read the text, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The very next verse is, and the earth was void and without form. So the context has changed. The context of Genesis 1-1 is everything. Now the context is the earth itself. And so Genesis 1, 2, and 3 talks about the earth forming in our solar system. It was void and without form, darkness upon the face of the deep, um, spirit on the uh, face of the waters. God said, let there be light. And here's a let there be verb. Um, and so this talks about a process that's occurring. This is fusion in the sun giving light. Now, you may be scratching your head and go, Michael, you said earlier that um, the sun's not created until uh, day four. Remember, I think that what Moses is describing here is phenomenological in nature. And so um, the sun appearing or being created on day four, I think, is when Moses can finally see it in the creation. But when God says, let there be light, I don't think this is the first time there's light in all of the universe, but it's the first time there's light for the earth. Remember, that's the context from which we're speaking. And so um, when God says, let there be life, I think light, there's fusion kicking off in the sun and it's giving um, light. But due to all the particles around um, the, the earth, because there would be particles in uh, the solar system at this point in time, and the earth's own hazy atmosphere uh, this light gets diffused all around the earth. Um, it's a glow, just like if you're in a fog and you turn your light on, your headlights on, and you can see that glow there because all the particles are just bouncing that light all, everywhere. Um, I think that's what's going on here. That's what science says, and it matches up with the text, so I don't see a reason to doubt that that's what's going on. Um, that slide was supposed to be much later. Um, so I've already said, I don't know how the slide got this early, but 
I'm not taking Genesis necessarily literal or figurative or spiritualizing it. I'm taking it as phenomenological language. Phenomenological language that means that Moses is literally describing what's going on as God is showing it to him. Sometimes that language is he's he is describing how it appears to him. All right, Genesis 1-5 as a universe, uh, solar system, army, as the solar system dust is collected up, dark and light are now distinguishable, even though the sun is still indistinguishable. So um, God says he's going to separate the, the light from the dark. And so the, the dust in the solar system, the atmosphere of the earth has cleared up enough that definitely there is now a light time and a dark time. But that wouldn't necessarily mean that you can distinguish the sun and the moon and the stars from everything else. Um, you can just see, oh, it's light now, it's dark now. Genesis 1, 6 through 8, Earth's water cycle is established. That's on day two. Genesis 1, 9 through 13, Earth becomes a terrestrial planet able to support plant life. It grows from the sun's light even though the sun is not distinguishable. Plants don't need the uh, times the cyclical uh, nature of seasons <coughs> necessarily. There are some plants that allow on it, but plants don't need seasons like animals do. So it's fine that the sun's light is not yet distinguishable. Uh, Genesis 1, 14 through 19, the solar system dust in our atmosphere clears enough so that the sun, the moon, and the stars are visible, and God gives us the purpose for this. He says that uh, they're going to be for times and for seasons. Well, what needs times and seasons? Animals do. Some plants do. Humans do. And so it's perfectly fine for God to have allowed these plants to grow during, you know, uh, day three. Um, but now that God's about to introduce animals, um, the, the atmosphere needs to have cleared up. All right, uh, Genesis uh, 1, 20 through 23, uh, day five, I think describes microscopic invertebrate sea and air creatures being created. Uh, Genesis 1, 24 through, 20, through 31, large land animals and humans are created, that's day six. Um, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, God rests. Hebrews 4 indicates that God is still resting um, and that we can enter into his rest. So I think this indicates that God's day of rest is longer than 24 hours. And if the seventh day is longer than 24 hours, it seems like um, the other days can also be longer than 24 hours. All right, what about animal death? Uh, so this is a common objection. Uh, Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered, in, entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, you may have thought that, that it, something glitched there. Um, this verse uh, is commonly used to say that there was no death before the fall. And what this verse actually is talking about is death spreading to all men. I think both the um, conditional immortality was done away with um, at the fall, 
and um, spiritual life was done away with at the fall so that now men will die <clears throat> in some number of years and they are spiritually separated. That's all this sin, that's all this verse is saying. No one believes that there was no death before the fall because everyone believes that Adam and Eve were eating. What were they eating? They were eating plants and plants died. Um, so one person I mentioned that to said, well, the plants, plants don't have blood in them. And, and this verse is talking about those things that have blood in them, which I think is arbitrary. Like, I don't see that here. That's the very ad hoc answer to me. Um, so to arbitrarily extend this to animals, but not to plants, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the verse says that death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, I encourage you to find the video of Ken Ham or someone else from Creation Institute talking about the woodpecker. They will talk about the woodpecker probably for 15 to 20 minutes. And I find it fascinating. I'm not, um, this is not sarcasm. How the woodpecker was created, his beak. Um, there's a cushion between his beak and his brain. How his eyes shut and then reopen um, with every time that his beak uh, strikes a tree, which is really fast if you've heard it. Um, its tongue goes in a crazy loop, excuse me, around its head. On the end of its tongue, it can create um, basically a sticky substance that once it drills a hole in the wood, it can stick its tongue in that wood and grab some insect that was already in that wood. Um, that sticky substance is stronger than superglue, <clears throat> but it can then immediately release that sticky substance with another chemical so that it can actually swallow that uh, insect or larvae without swallowing its tongue. Now they're using the woodpecker as an example against evolution, which I completely agree with. Um, I believe the woodpecker was designed. I believe the woodpecker was designed around death, death of those insects. The woodpecker and several other animals in our creation are all designed to do one thing really well, and that is to kill other animals. There are lots of animals and plants that are also designed to scavenge and decompose dead animals. Just imagine if those things weren't here, all the dead things that we would see piled up. I remember driving um, one time and I saw an armadillo that had been killed on the side of the road and there was a vulture literally eating the dead, rotten armadillo's rear end. And I thought, how disgusting, but how beautiful and how marvelous and how well engineered our planet is to deal with death. I don't see evidence that everything was recreated um, around death after the fall. Yes, Adam's work is cursed. Um, the ground is cursed. What does that mean? 
Um, there are some various ideas on there. I think we could discuss that. But I don't think it means that um, now woodpeckers, which were designed to eat plants, are now redesigned to, to eat um, insects. Or spiders are now redesigned to eat insects. Or lions are now redesigned to eat animals where they were grazers before that. <clears throat> All right, so another common objection. What about the Sabbath? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no do in in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner, which is a foreigner or traveler who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, therefore. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Yes. The Lord made everything in six days and he rested on the seventh day. I'm a day-ager as, uh, I, I don't think I've said that, I said that term at the very beginning, but I didn't let you know that's what I was. But what I've described is the day-age, um, possibly with a gap in between one and two of Genesis 1. Um, <clears throat> but, these verses present no problem for my view. Um, the Lord uh, made the earth in six days. How you take the definition of day doesn't change the fact that there were six of them, and then he rested on the seventh, and he set up that pattern for us to do the same. We are supposed to work six and then rest on the seventh. All right, uh, another objection. I know it seems like I'm answering a lot of objections, but I, I've heard a lot. Um, the Rate Project. Uh, read a couple books that kind of dealt with this. Um, basically, if you're not familiar with it, these creationist scientists <clears throat> went out and did some studies of some rocks and um, come away, and, and they think that their evidence um, based on radiation is suspect. Well, First, the evidence of an old universe or an old earth is not only based on um, radioactive decay of rocks. That's one of many factors um, that would lead us to believe that the earth is old. Um, so is it possible that the rate of radiation has changed? Yeah. Do we have any good reason to believe that that's the case? No. Um, and in fact, all of science... All of it is based on the assumption that the laws are steady and um, don't change. And um, if they do change, then the project of science basically goes out. Um, so it's possible, yes, uh, but I, there's no good reason to believe it has. Um, but all of their, their, they focus on two different things. And I wrote hydrogen here, but that should say helium. Um, their arguments revolve around two different um, atoms uh, or molecules, helium and carbon-14. So um, I can summarize both of these books for you rather quickly. If you want to go read them or if you think that I'm not doing a fair summary, um, please let me know. Um, but uh, helium, and I wrote hydrogen, but it should be helium. Um, when 
things, elements decay away, nuclear decay, they decay down into what we call daughters. So you may have a very heavy um, atom like uranium-239 um, or 235 or 236. And it will, over time, uh, spontaneously fission. And it, when it fissions, it splits into two or more what we call daughter atoms. And if you know anything about um, elements, atoms, there's protons and neutrons in the nucleus. Well, the bigger your atom is, the larger the ratio of neutrons to protons. Um, and so uranium is going to have a lot more neutrons than it does um, protons in its nucleus. But when it splits, those number of neutrons, the protons, is overbalanced. And so these daughter product, pro, uh, products are often unstable themselves. And so they'll undergo a number of decays uh, either to eject some of those neutrons um, or to split themselves. And so there's this whole cascade of possible daughter product, products that uranium or plutonium uh, might split into. <clears throat> Eventually we get down to something as small as um, helium, which helium could be ejected in um, one of these fissions to begin with. But by the time we get to you know, 3.8 billion years of this process going on, we wouldn't expect helium to be found as a remaining daughter product um, in much concentration, although it still is being produced. Um, and so these rate pro project guys point to the presence of helium as evidence that um, the earth is, is young. Hopefully that didn't take too long. I have a feeling that it did. Um, hopefully you understood it. The point is, um, that helium is there and all of our theories say it shouldn't be there. Therefore, um, we can't trust, um, the evidence we get from, um, nuclear radiation. The problem is that helium gets into and out of spaces it shouldn't be able to get into or out of because helium is a very small inert um, atom. So scientists don't use helium as a tracker at all uh, because they know that it, it can't be trusted. The concentration can be greater or lower because of how small and how inert it is. But they can track all of the other daughters that are there. And when you plot these daughters um, on a graph and their concentrations, they all form a straight line. And so all that straight line tells us, it gives us um, the age with or without helium. And so helium is the throwaway, um, but all these other daughter products arrive at the right concentration. Now, if all of these daughter products were out of whack, then maybe our theories about nuclear radiation would be be wrong. Um, but I and lots of other uh, scientists are not willing to throw that out based on the fact that um, 
helium uh, contaminates stuff because it gets into and out of places it shouldn't. Another point that they argue is that we find carbon-14 in deep, deep deposits of coal. Carbon-14 shouldn't be there. Um, carbon-14 is formed um, when um, living material is uh, radiated by the sun, by ultraviolet light. Um, and so it's radioactive, and so after 5,000 years or so, that's a half-life of it, I believe. Maybe the half-life is less than that, and after 5,000 years. Anyways, it should be all gone after a million years, and we think, you know, that the Earth is, at least old Earth creationists think that the Earth is older than that. So why, the question is, why are we finding these carbon-14 atoms in these deep deposits of coal? Well, ultraviolet light doesn't only come from the sun. Yeah, most of it comes from the sun. Uh, but you can get ultraviolet light from uh, fission reactions that are also deep in the Earth. Um, so, and we've gotten so good that we can detect like one carbon-14 atom in a huge sample of carbon-14. That's how precise our instruments are. So one carbon-14 atom I don't feel like needs an explanation because all it takes is some ultraviolet light to get um, down there, be given off by some other reaction, or half-lives are just that. It's the time it takes for half of the sample to decay away. Well, eventually you get down to one carbon-14 atom, and we really don't have equations that determine how long it should take for one atom. It's always a sample of atoms, and that on average half decay away in the half-life. So one atom could potentially stay down there for a long, long time, or it could have gotten uh, produced um, by some other mechanism. So uh, again, helium and carbon-14 aren't enough for me to start questioning all the other stable things that we know about nuclear radiation. All right, so summary. This is longer than what I intended, but um, this should say, not only does the text allow for an old Earth creation interpretation, it seems to suggest it. And then when we try to look at natural revelation as well and understand what it's saying, it also seems to say the Earth is very old. So. I happen to think that both natural and special revelation uh, allow, hint, point at the fact that the universe is old, and so that's the position I hold. Um, I grew up as a young earther. I switched to old earther. I switched back to young earther. Now I'm an old earther. This isn't something that I hold dear. It's not something. It's not something I'm not willing to change my mind on. Um, in fact, I'm willing to change my mind if. Uh, the biblical textual uh, evidence were to suggest it. it. If I were to be shown from scripture that um, the earth must be young, then I would say, okay, we're misunderstanding uh, science. Um, but I don't, I, I've looked at all the arguments, that, all the common arguments, unless you got some new argument, uh, I've probably heard it before and, and I don't find them convincing. So um, so that is why I'm an old earth creationist. I think um, the text allows and hints for it, and um, the verbs that are used um, make it seem like it's uh, a longer process than uh, 24 hours. 
And then when I pair that with what God's revealed in, in natural revelation, which I think is very, very strong, um, that's how I lean. So hopefully you've enjoyed um, this episode. Sorry that it's a little bit longer than what we intended. Um, maybe Michael's will be longer as well. And you'll get you know a couple good um, differing opinions on, on how old the earth is. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 